No? Oh, there we go. <laughs> Somebody told me that because of the children's program, I should keep this short. That's cute. I don't know why you guys bother to tell me things like that. <laughs> Never works. My wife said I should get a t-shirt that says, help me, I'm a teacher, I can't shut up. <laughs> oh well. We heard about light and darkness in the songs today, and I'm going to touch on that, but I'm going to start with dreams, because dreams happen in the dark, usually. But I'm going to talk about dreaming in the night about the day. Andrew Peterson wrote a song called Carry the Fire, and in three of the, I guess they're technically the bridge, but he uses that phrase. He says, we dream in the night of a city ascending, the sun in the center and the peace unending. That was the candle today. And we dream in the night of a king and a kingdom where joy writes the songs and the innocent sing them. And we dream in the night of a feast and a wedding and the groom in his glory when the bride is made ready. Dreams are funny things. We don't always know what to make of them. I'm thankful that with most of mine, I can just chuck them as a mental garbage disposal because most of mine don't make any sense. But every once in a while, I get this thing that we like to call deja vu. Have you guys ever had that? What, again? And I like to think of deja vu as God saying to me, see, I knew. Because that's what has happened to me more times than I can remember. More times than I can count. I have had some sort of a picture just float through my head. Several specific things in it, a specific place, specific people, actions. And it's part of a dream or something, and I forget about it like I forget most of my dreams, thankfully. But then, years later, there I'll be in that scene with those people, that same thing happening, and I'll go, wait a minute, I've seen this before. You knew, didn't you? So dreams are interesting things. We dream in the night, but we don't dream of night, do we? When you dream about something, and when you work for something, and when you have to wait for something, and when you suffer for it, and when sometimes all you have is the hope and the dream of something, you treasure it. It means a lot. When I worked at, well, I've worked at several private schools, and, and I've seen this happen, where if you go to the lost and found, sometimes it makes you scratch your head. I've seen at the lost and found in private schools where tuition is high, I've seen car keys, uh, sunglasses, the expensive kind. Um, I've seen... Cell phones, 
the expensive kind. I've even seen envelopes of cash in the lost and found. I'm sorry, I don't have that kind of money. I guess some people do, but I, I began to think this through and, and wonder why it is that some people would feel okay about losing that and not coming back for it, because I wouldn't. And I sure wouldn't let my kids be okay with it. <laughs> you lost what? Back you go. But I began to realize, uh, as I began to interact with some of these kids and their families, that some families made their kids pay for things. And when you do that, when your kid loses something that they paid for, they care about it. They go look for it. They go asking for it. They do things to replace it. But if you pay for it, then it doesn't matter to the kid nearly as much. And I began to see that that was often what was happening. That the parents were paying for the phone, the car keys, the sunglasses. And so the students, eh, mom and dad will buy me another one. It made me think. So now you know, kids, <laughs> why you have to pay for your own things. Because when you have to pay for it, it matters. It means something. When there's a lot of darkness, one single light really stands out. And the more lights you put with it, the more powerful that light is. I think about the candlelight services that we've had here, and there's a lot of candles. And it helps. Every single one of them makes a difference. You start snuffing them out, and you can tell after a few candles get snuffed, you're like, ooh, I can't see as far. I can't see as clearly. Things are confused. Things are a little more frightening the fewer lights there are. So in thinking about dreams and night and lights in the darkness and Christmas, I began to think of one of my, actually two of my favorite stories that go with Christmas. To illustrate the light in the darkness. Twice upon a time, there was a man named Joe. Joseph, actually, and I say twice because there are two of them mentioned in the Bible. We'll refer to them as Joe 1 and Joe 2. Both of them had dreams. Both of them went to Egypt. Both of them had their comfortable lives disrupted in such a way that they were forced to pay very close attention to God in ways they had never had to do so before. Joe 1 was the savior of his family that became a nation of Jews after a long time of slavery. Joe 2 was the savior of his family, and his son became the savior of the world. And his son's followers as Christians enjoy freedom from sin after a long time of slavery. In both stories, dreams play a major role in shaping the direction of Joe's life. God spoke directly to both Joes about their future, what to do about a crisis in the present. 
Joe 1, after, after being sent to Egypt, God made it clear to him that disastrous death was coming and something had to be done to save entire civilizations. To Joe 2, God made it clear that disastrous death was coming and something had to be done to save his family. And little did he know it, the entire world and going to Egypt came after that. But I don't think either of the Joes understood just how big the story was in which they played such important roles. Both Joes were made to endure some pretty unfair circumstances forced upon them suddenly. We like to complain about things being unfair when we perceive them that way, especially when we're kids. We're like, ah, his is bigger than mine. I wanted the blue one. My mom was fond of saying, there can be two supermen. Kids, oh, they teach us so much, don't they? You remember that, don't you? Mm -hmm. But you think about what happened to these two Joes. And it wasn't because they were evil that these unfair things came upon them. It was because they were doing the right thing that these unfair things came upon them. Joseph's described in glowing terms, Joe too, by the way, Joe too, described in glowing terms in the Gospels as a righteous man, just, merciful, a kind, thoughtful man. Here, have something you didn't expect, can't change, and probably won't like. Thanks, Lord. I mean, really, how would you feel? You're engaged to this girl that you like, You've got a business, you've got this normal, comfortable life, and then nothing's ever the same again. God comes to you in a dream and says, yes, she's pregnant, I know about it, it's my doing. Take her as your wife anyway. And it's going to get more exciting than that, just hold on to your seat. You're going to travel to Egypt, which is famous for not having wood. Yes, I know you're a carpenter. That's okay. I've taken care of that. Some rich men you've never met before and won't ever see again are going to come visit you after you've been living in a city that you're not in right now for two years. I'm sorry. Can we start over? <laughs> You're going to what? Oh. Dreams. Sometimes they lead to confusion. Even when God's the one giving them and he's spelling things out for you. You've got to know Joseph was confused. At least a little. Scratching his head. And who do you tell about all this? Go down to the local tavern. Hey, guys, I'm, I'm having a strange day. Let me tell you about what God told me. This is not the kind of thing you spread around the local synagogue. And Joe 1, famous for trying to talk to people about his dreams, look what it got him. God gave me these dreams. Aren't they cool? Throw me in a pit, sell me into slavery, foreign country. 
Where are you, God? What the heck? And yet, it was most certainly God who gave him those dreams, wasn't it? And it was most certainly God who allowed him to be beaten up, sold into slavery to a country whose language he didn't know, customs he had to learn as he went. Because years later, about 17 years later, he looks back and he tells his brothers who did this to him what you meant for evil. God meant for good. And now I get it. And now it makes sense how it couldn't have been any other way. We look back at Joe too, and we say, yeah, now it kind of makes sense. It couldn't have been any other way. But you've got to know that in the middle of those, both those Joes are going, this doesn't make sense. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. What in the world is going on with these dreams of mine? God's working as he always has been in ways we don't expect. Worldwide plague probably was not in your planner back in February. It wasn't in mine. Neither was an international famine for Joe 1 or the birth of the Messiah for Joe 2. But we have an important place in the story, just like the Joes did. God is in control. If we focus on what's gone wrong, if we focus on the bad things that might happen, and we forget to focus on the good that we know will happen, we become far less fruitful, less bright lights to a world in desperate need of the light we have. We anticipate the day of Christ's first coming for weeks before it actually happens. I've heard some people say, oh, I'm so glad when Christmas is over because it takes so long. Some people start right after Halloween. Stores start right after the back-to-school sales are over. Mm. So by the time we actually get to Christmas, some of us are <laughs> glad that's over with. Send all those crazy relatives home, get rid of all these decorations and these massive piles of paper and boxes everywhere. Let's get back to something like normal life where I can sleep for eight hours. Right? That happens for some of us. Maybe some of us are the ones that caused that to happen to other people, but anyway. <laughs> the Jews had an even longer time of anticipation for their Messiah coming the first time. 750 years. That's a long time to pass on to your kids. Here's what the Lord said. Here's what to look for. And your grandkids. Here's what the Lord said. Here's what to look for. And if you're lucky, your great-grandkids. Here's what the Lord said. Here's what to look for. And you hope that they pass it on to their kids because by the time Christ comes around 700 years after these prophecies, 
Some people remember, but not everybody does. Some people know. Some people know kind of what to look for. But God still blows everybody's mind. Jews had anticipated this. They'd waited for so long. They'd been teased even by false messiahs before this. They were perhaps a little cynical. They were lost in a dark world, politically and spiritually. They needed some strong evidence to believe that the true light had actually come into the world, the one who would overcome the darkness. So Jesus gave them the proof they needed. Apart from the miraculous elements of Christ's birth itself, I don't know if you know your biology, but Mary did, and the whole idea of a virgin birth made her scratch her head. How shall this be, Lord? Then there's his escape to Egypt. Herod thought he was so smart, like all bad guys do. I know, I'll fool them. The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. And again, he comes to Joseph. who had, He's probably thinking, okay, now that we got the whole birth thing done, now we're kind of settling down here. Now maybe things will go back to, oh, a dream. Get up now, Joseph, and get out in the night. Take your wife and your child. Go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. Wait, this isn't over? There's more? Okay, there's more. Pack up the gold, pack up the frankincense, pack up the myrrh. Off we go to Egypt. And then what? Settle down there? Huh? As settled as you can get in a foreign country. I wonder what people thought of Joseph in Egypt. Some rich foreigner, some carpenter, decided to come vacation here? <laughs> what was he thinking? Ain't no wood to work with around here. Not much, anyway. <laughs> so you have all these miraculous events surrounding his birth. And then we've got the astounding statements surrounding both of his visits to the temple when he's young. We have the prophetess Anna and Simeon who come in at his circumcision and they, they say things that you don't hear people say about babies. A light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be able to needlepoint that very easily. I'm sorry. Can you... Can you And then, just when they start to think things have settled down, and yeah, Jesus is a little peculiar, but he's a nice young man. And whoa, to the temple when he's 12. And then we get to hear him say, why were you afraid? Can I get a what the heck from the parents in the room? Of course we were afraid. You don't just let a kid run loose in Jerusalem for three days and not be afraid, right? We were worried to death about you, says his mom, like a normal mom would say. And he says, 
that's odd. <laughs> Didn't you know? Shouldn't you have already realized that I must be about my father's business? Yeah, we're going to talk about this on the way home, Jesus. A light in the dark. Confusion from dreams. And the Jews had dreamed of this Messiah for so long that they had gotten so tied to their own versions of this dream that it was hard for them to see anything else. Even after the disciples had walked with Jesus for three years, heard him say all these crazy things that no one else had ever said, do things no one had ever done, and then at the end actually convict himself and allow himself to be killed and come back to life again. Even after all that, this image they have of a political Messiah is still with them. Because right before he goes back up to heaven after he's promised the Holy Spirit and the church is going to grow and all these things are going to go to the ends of the earth to be a witness for me, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus goes, (laughs) it is not for you to know the times the Father has set. So this anticipation thing has its pitfalls, doesn't it? Even now, we have a lot of different interpretations of the book of Revelation. When we anticipate Christ's second coming, a lot of people think they know kind of what it'll look like. They don't agree with each other. Probably similar to what the Jews thought about the Messiah coming. A lot of different interpretations. And yet, when the Messiah finally does come, it's unmistakable. His followers are so impressed with his deity, one of them begged him to leave because the follower was so sinful. One believed that impossible healing would come just by touching his clothes. Huh? I don't hear anybody talking about that these days. One skeptic was convinced by a single impossible description. You remember when Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And immediately, this was Philip, immediately he said, You're the Messiah. That's all it took. There must have been something about that that really got to this guy. All of those who knew him, watched him, met him, None of them would agree with any of the other religions in the world who say he was just a great teacher because that's not what any of them said about him. Peter said, to whom else shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. The chief priest said, you've heard with your own mouth his blasphemy. Does he not deserve death? But there was no middle ground. unmistakable when God shows up what he's about. 
all of them came to believe that Jesus and Jesus alone held eternal life and fulfilled the messianic prophecies of Jewish tradition. All of his disciples came to believe that. His enemies were so helpless to deconstruct him, change his narrative, or contend with his wisdom and miracles that they resorted to treachery and political fraud to kill him. And even failed there. After everything else God did for us, God even had to help us kill him. And then, as if his death wasn't the most powerful event in history, he comes back from the dead, has even more power than before, if that's possible. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit through tongues of fire, lights in the darkness, so that all of his followers not only are connected, but that his power and his light can reach to every dark corner of the world. During the COVID restrictions, we all feel under a burden. It wears on you. I had one um, guy that I listened to describe it as a beating that we all have to take. It wears us down. It sours our outlook and our plans. It invades all aspects of our behavior and conversation, our business and our worship, and our social and professional interaction. We groan for freedom not just from the restrictions, but from the fear and the confusion that goes with them. We feel helpless to help ourselves, to free others, or to reverse the effects of these restrictions. In other words, it's a lot like the condition of sin in the world, isn't it? Just as we remember a time of freedom without the restrictions, so our spirit sense something is wrong with the world. Entropy, death and disease, tragedies, unfairness, injustice, cruelty, poverty, insanity, waste, failure, frustration, and aging are not the way it's supposed to be. We have always lived with them in place and we still do not accept them. All of us long for them to be reversed, removed, banished, done away with, and overcome. We long for rescue, for salvation, for a savior. Jews of Palestine, back when Jesus was born, felt much the same. It wasn't COVID restricting them. It was the Romans and their own religious leaders. You ever looked at all the commentaries on the commentaries that the rabbis have? All the rules? Interpretations of the rules. Very lawyerish, much like the tax code. They lived in fear of some physical things, but more in fear of condemnation and exclusion from the community. Community was everything to the Jews. Sound familiar? Their community wasn't perfect. Their priests and prophets were not always trustworthy. Their kings were long gone and a mixed lot at best when they had them. Their lives were often, often focused on just surviving, navigating the daily minefield. Virtue signaling is not new. It was there in Palestine too. What the well-thought-of Jew is wearing, saying, offering at the temple today. 
these will receive greater condemnation. You remember Jesus saying that. Into this weary world of people tossed about and harassed, without a shepherd, Jesus made his invasion. And the image of shepherd, prophet, priest, and king will never be the same again. Now we know what God wants from his people. Now we have an example of what God is really like. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have you been with me this long and not known me? Now we have eyewitness accounts of the man God himself and records of his words and deeds for all to read and hear. We no longer need to stumble blindly through sacrifices, ordinances, ignorant devotion, and oppressed, twisted teachings. We can know the truth. We can walk in freedom. We can rejoice in all circumstances because we know that today is not the end of the story. This life is not the end. It's not even the best of what we can know. We can say with certainty that God is good. That evil will be punished. That sins are forgiven. That broken will be made whole again. Captives will be freed at last. All loss will be forgotten in light of what is gained in Christ. That our light and momentary afflictions cannot compare with the glory we shall share with Him. For we have a Savior. He is Christ the Lord, the light to the Gentiles, the glory of His people Israel, the bright and morning star, the image of the invisible God the firstborn from the dead, the source and the completion of all things, the risen King, the Almighty, the immortal, the invisible, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. We have good news to share just like the shepherds that long night ago. Stunned by the divine revelation, charged by heaven to seek Christ out, they were obedient and told everyone they knew what they'd found in a manger. Now, they didn't have all the answers. They didn't have educated words. They didn't have special clothes or a nice building or a big congregation or a slick presentation. They would have been thankful to have those things, but without them, they still had good news to share. That was all they had to do. God did the rest. They let their light shine. After Christ ascended, his disciples were much the same. No special training, no fancy pamphlets, no degrees, no websites. But they shared the good news they had wherever they went. And now that is us. That is our calling. We have the word of God, the life of Christ, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and we have each other. That is all we need to have to start sharing the good news we know. In spite of confusion, in spite of darkness, in spite of the dreams that have yet to be fulfilled. And like the Old Testament prophets who persevered in shining the light of God's message into an increasingly dark world around them, 
We tell people about a king coming someday. A priest without sin who intercedes for us to the Father. A prophet who is actually God's son, nothing less. We tell the world about coming back to life after dying to self. About giving away what you have only to find all your needs supplied. About embracing trials and suffering with hope, joy, and peace because of a belief in a good God we've never seen, whose presence is undeniable. Christ has died, and it was our fault. Christ has risen, and we are forgiven. Christ will come again, and we will be with him. We remember and we proclaim. We wait, we hope, we work, we pray. We dream of, talk of, and plan for the day in the middle of the night until that day comes and never leaves again. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and let day be so real that we cannot even dream of night anymore.